So today, we're looking to find people who we would say are somebody we would want to follow. Somebody who we look at, maybe like Stephanie and Ivan, and say, wow, what would it take to be like that? What would it take to be a person whom God can use, a person who really is devoted and even, you would say, excited about the Lord? When you think about it, I mean, think about somebody that you see as somebody who you look up to, you admire, somebody whose faith is really strong, somebody who represents God in such a way that you would say, I want to be just like them. Who would, you, who would you imagine? And who do you imagine as somebody that has this incredible amount of passion and energy for God? Who is that person? But when I think of, of different people, um, I can think of different people in my life who exhibited those kinds of qualities of faith. And typically, there are two types of people. The first is the brand new Christian. The person who's just come to know God and is really excited about understanding grace in their life. They just want to share God's love with other people because they've experienced this newness and this freshness in their life they've never known before. And there's this amazing freedom and joy that they have. And that's great, okay? But then there's a second type of person who actually reflects this in a way that I think is even more powerful than that, and that is an elderly Christian. A person who has been faithful to God through thick and through thin and is now is very old, but continues to reflect the glory of God even with excitement. And I've known a few of those people as well. But I met one about nine years ago in 2006, I was at a conference, and I signed up for this one workshop, and I went to this workshop, and was led by a man named Dr. Dennis Kinlaw. He's 83 years old, 83 years old. And you couldn't tell it by his enthusiasm, you couldn't tell it by his voice, you couldn't tell it, if you couldn't see him, you wouldn't realize how old he was. He was just a man who was excited about God. But what stood to me, stood out to me as a contrast to that, that helped me to understand this enthusiasm for him, was not just that he was elderly, but that his wife had just recently died. And he was very, very close to her. 59 years they've been married. He'd been a seminary professor. He's a theologian. He's a leader in the church. And he and his wife had done groundbreaking work in their denomination. And they were extremely close and when his wife died, he didn't just give up. He continued to serve God with this incredible amount of enthusiasm. And I was so encouraged by that. But there was one thing he said that I could never forget. There was one thing he shared towards the end of his seminar that I could never forget. And it just always stuck with me. He said, you know, I'm 83 years old and my wife just died. But I feel like I'm just beginning. There's so much more I want to do for God. I feel like I'm just beginning. That just really stood out to me at 83 years old. God was using him in mighty ways. He had recently just published a book, a book on theology. And so I went to their bookstore there and I bought it and I read it. And it's a book and it's called Let's Start with Jesus. Let's start with Jesus. And here is this man who represented to me what it was like to be a person who was new, 
even though he was 83 years old. And in the book, I just want to read one quote to you. And it talks very much about what we're talking about today. And he said this, Christ died to do more than get us past the judgment and help us to escape hell. He became incarnate and died on Calvary's cross to remove any impediments that would hinder us from being comfortable in his presence and to change us so we can enjoy him in self-giving love now and forever. To enjoy him in self-giving love now and forever. I want you to think about that statement for just a moment because in many ways it's a paradox. And the paradox is this, that self-giving love is enjoyable. That sacrifice is actually pleasure. That the giving of oneself in totality, even to the point of death, can be the most joyful experience of life. And so today, God wants us to see this new creation that God gives to us in Jesus. This new life that comes through this type of self-giving love, through this type of sacrifice. A kind of love and a kind of faith and a kind of life that can always be renewed so that even as we get older, we get stronger. And even as we get older, in many ways, we become more youthful. God wants us to have this new creation. Now, our key verse for today is the very last verse of the verses that we'll be studying. But it's verse 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And you have it there on your outline. And Paul says this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. With an exclamation point. The new has come. Paul is excited and he used a number of different adverbs. Paul just keeps building and building upon what he has been saying. So the therefore helps us to think, well, we have to see what he said before, but it also causes us to want to see what he says afterwards. And what he says afterwards is that after everything that I've said in verses 1 through 16, therefore, I want you to know, all because all of that is true, you are a new creation. You are a new creation. And so we actually even have to go back to the last verse of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians to understand how Paul was connecting all these different qualities of a new life so that we would be able to say, well, because all these things are true, I truly am a new creation in Christ. He wants us to see, God does through Paul, that there is a quality that it continues to grow in our lives. He wants us to see that there is something new. Now, this word new in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, is the word that means freshness. It means something that already exists being renewed. There's a different word that if you want to say something's brand new, then it's the word neos in Greek. And that is like the word neophyte, where we get something that is brand new, youthful. But this is the word that means freshness, something that's already existed, like you and me. And now it is made renewed. And this is what God wants us to have. And Paul is telling us that there are certain things that this new life is going to demonstrate. There are certain things about this new life that it's going to want. 
And so Paul uses these adverbs, and so one of them is therefore, but another one is so, okay? And so we see that word so, we see the word now, and these are connecting words to help us to see what he's trying to get us to understand. And so the first one that Paul says is in verse 18 of chapter 4. And Paul says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Okay, so Paul wants us to fix our eyes on something. And now begins our journey. So I want to just go to give you the summary of the message first, and then we're going to take it apart and dissect it. Okay, so the summary is this, that this is what God wants us to know about our new creation. And that is that we are to be aiming our lives. We are to be fixing our eyes. We are to be aiming our eyes on our ultimate destiny. Aiming at our destiny. When we know our destiny, then we set our priorities. When we know where we're going, then we determine how we're going to get there and we build our priorities. But then upon our priorities, what we are building is our legacy of what our life is truly all about. And as we seek our destiny, as we keep our priorities, as we build our legacy, we are revealing then our true identity. And so this is what we're going to look at today. And so we begin with chapter 4, verse 18, through chapter 5, verse 8. And I'll read that and you can follow along. And there it says, so we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by sight. We live by faith, not by sight. For we are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So this is what God says about a person who is experiencing freshness in life. They have their aim on their destiny. They have their eyes fixed on where they're going. The word fixed is the Greek word skopeo, which is where we get the word scope. And it means to aim at. And so God wants us to daily be aiming at our final destiny. That may seem counterintuitive to us, but it is exactly what God wants us to do. Not to be just aiming for what we want today, and not to just be aiming for what we have here on earth, but aiming for our eternal destiny. Paul wants us to know that this is an absolute certainty that is going to happen as certain as there is death, there is also a certain future for every believer. There is a certain path that God would have us to aim at. Because God wants us to know that our future is absolutely secure. And so the, Paul continues here in these verses to tell us what we can know. As we see there, there is something we can know with absolute certainty. 
And the first thing is that there is certainty of a future possession of a spiritual body in heaven. Like Leslie was sharing, you know, this body, as it gets older, it doesn't just burn fat automatically, right? It doesn't stay healthy all by itself. There's certain things that we have to do. Why? Because we know that it's running down. We know that it's wearing out. And so Paul uses lots of word pictures to help us to understand the realities of what he's saying. And so he uses the word tent, all right? He uses the word tent to describe our bodies. Now, Paul understood tent because he was a tent maker. Paul also understood tent because people lived in tents in those days. A tent was something that would wear out. A tent was something that could be torn. A tent was something that could be dismantled or destroyed. And so Paul says, you know what? I want you to know that we have an earthly tent that we live in, all right? And it's going to be destroyed. But someday, I want you to know you're going to have a building, not a tent. You're going to have a building, and it's going to be in an eternal house in heaven. You can be absolutely certain of that. That this is your final destiny. You're going to get a brand new body, and it's not going to be like a tent. It's going to be like a brick building, strong and secure. Now, meanwhile, of course, this tent is going to experience the winds and the trials of life. Earlier on in chapter 4, Paul had said something, and I want to read from the Phillips translation, and it's from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 8 and 9. And he says this about our tents. He says, we are hard-pressed on all sides, but we are never frustrated. We are puzzled, but never in despair. We are persecuted, but are never deserted. We may be knocked down, but we are never knocked out. And so Paul wants us to know that, yes, our tent's going to go through some tough times here on earth. And it's going to be difficult, but God's going to be faithful to us. However, you are going to get a permanent tent. A permanent home, I mean. You are going to get a place that will not be destroyed. And you can be absolutely certain of that. You're going to be living in a place where there is a new Jerusalem, in a new heaven, and a new earth. And you're going to live forever with God. And the absolute certainty of this is based upon the absolute certainty of Jesus. In John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus was talking to his disciples. He was telling them about things that they could know for certain and that he had authority to do with his life what he wanted. And so he says this in John chapter 2, verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? they exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this, when he, Jesus said this temple, he meant his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Our future spiritual body is guaranteed by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. That Jesus' body, which was of the flesh, is now a spiritual body. And God wants us to know that in the future, we too, like Jesus, will have a spiritual body. The second thing that Paul wants us to know with absolute certainty is that there is a present possession 
of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There is a present possession of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We see that in verse 5. It says, now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So our purpose includes the fact that God has filled us with the Holy Spirit, that he has put the Holy Spirit in us, not just to experience this life, but to desire the next life. Paul uses the word groaning to describe that. He says in verse 2, Meanwhile, we groan. We long to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. We are not wanting to be unclothed, but to be clothed, Paul says. So the groaning is not from the problems of this world. Those are only the backdrop for the groaning. The groaning is that we want to have our new clothes. Our groaning is that we want to be in heaven. Our groaning is that we don't want to live in this earthly tent. We don't want to be naked. We want to have the clothes that God gives to us. And this is our assurance from Paul and from God that there is the Holy Spirit as a guarantee in our lives right now that we will have a new set of clothes in heaven. We're going to have a new building and we're going to have a set of new clothes. And so God wants us to be present to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this is our assurance so that someday as we face death, we can be absolutely certain that we will be with God forever. Therefore, Paul says in verse 6, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. These verses are translated in other versions by saying that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And this is our third assurance that God has for our destiny, that when we finally are absent, when we finally die in this fleshly body, this tent, The moment we die, we will be present with Jesus. The moment we leave this earth, the Christian can be absolutely certain that they will be with God. And this word confident in verse 8 can be translated of good courage. God wants us to have courage as we aim our lives towards our destiny in heaven. To have courage to know that we will live in heaven with God, with Jesus forever. Secondly, God also wants us, as a new creation, to continually reset and set our number one priority. Verses 9 and 10 say this, So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. God wants us to have the number one priority as this, to please him. What would you say is your number one priority in life? Well, whatever it is, God wants you to use that to please him. He wants you to be a pleasing aroma in his eyes and in his presence. He wants us to find satisfaction in pleasing him as our number one priority. We find our greatest satisfaction in pleasing God 
period. We will find our greatest joy in doing what he asks us to do. And he will reward us. He's going to reward us for the things that we do. We are going to face judgment. Now, this judgment here is for our Christians. This is not a judgment about whether or not we go to heaven. Our destiny has already been set. But every believer, you and I both, are going to be judged by God. What has God called us to do? Have we been faithful in it? Have we used what God has given to us to please him? Have we used our treasures? Have we used our time? Have we used our gifts so that God would be pleased with what we're doing? We're going to have to give an account to God someday. God's going to look at us and say, what did you do with what I gave to you? And we're going to have to answer with that. But if now we live to use the things that God has given to us, if we set God as our first priority, then we will find satisfaction in pleasing him, not pleasing anyone else. We don't have to please others to find joy in our life if we please God first. Thirdly, God wants those who are a new creation to be faithful at working at their most vital legacy. All of us are going to leave a legacy. Some good and some bad. But God wants us to leave a legacy that's going to cause other people to remember us with love. Let me read verses 11 through 16. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Paul is excited about what God is going to do in his life and through his life. And he wants to share this love with other people. He says that it is Christ's love that compels him. It is Christ's love that urges him on. That's what compel means. He knows that Jesus died for all people. He knows that Jesus died for him. And therefore, he knows that what's truly important in life is not, what about, is not about what we can see, but about what is unseen. Because it's what's unseen that Jesus died for. Jesus died for the things that are of our hearts, the things that once were sin, but now he wants to replace it with his spirit and replace it with life. He wants our legacy to be a legacy that is powered by love. A legacy that is powered by the things that we've done for God. We are all, all going to die, and we all know that. But do we think about it in such a way that we live? So that what we do makes a difference in the lives of other people. We work at the legacy that we want to leave. 
Paul is saying that, you know, I used to judge people just based upon the flesh. I used to judge Jesus based upon the flesh. And when I looked at Jesus as just another human being, you know, I thought he was just a radical trying to overthrow our belief in, in God. And so I wanted to kill the people who believed in him. And I wanted to end Christianity. But when I began to look at Jesus as he really is, when I began to see Jesus as my Messiah and as my Savior, I began to not only see Jesus differently, I began to see other people differently. Because the greatest thing other people need is the same thing that you and I need, is Jesus. And so Paul is saying there that I am just so eager to persuade other people. Who are you trying to persuade for Jesus? Who are you trying to persuade for the Lord? This last week, I had a chance to meet with a young man who's been coming to Harvest off and on. And he has been seeking God for a number of years. And a number of different people have been meeting with him. And gradually, he is becoming persuaded in the love of Jesus because people are spending time with him, listening to him, talking to him, offering him things that he wouldn't have otherwise to be with them, to persuade them that they love Jesus is the greatest gift that we can do for other people, that there is a need in everyone's heart for love. And to be able to persuade someone to love Jesus is the greatest persuasion and the greatest power that we can have, to spend time with someone to love them. Um, not long ago, actually, Ivan and, and Stephanie, there was a lady who visited our church, and, and she was a missionary in Morocco, and, um, and she was there as a single woman. And she said it was the most difficult thing of her life to be there. Because in there, it was illegal, as they said, to evangelize. It was illegal for a Muslim to become a Christian. And yet she was there as a single woman. She didn't even have her family to support her. And she said she was so lonely. And it was so difficult. But she knew that this is where God had called her. And so she was serving there out of faithfulness, seeking to persuade people to Jesus. Don't give up on the people you're trying to persuade. Continue to spend time with them. But don't give up trying to persuade. Live your life in such a way that other people can know God's love. Dr. Kinsade said something else at the seminars that I went to, he said this. He said, the ultimate proof of Jesus' love in me is that I care about somebody else more than myself. The ultimate proof of Jesus' love in me is that I care about somebody else more than myself. Who are you loving more than yourself? Who are you giving to more than yourself? And when does it count the most? maybe when it's the hardest. Dr. Kincaid was reliving his last year with his wife, 59 years. And he said, and again, this, other, this statement really struck me. He said the best year of his 59 years of marriage was his last year. And of course, the question was, well, why, Dr. Kincaid? Why was your last year the best year? And he said it was because I got to take care of my wife while she was dying from cancer. I got to take care of her while she was dying. That's what made his life sweet at the end. 
that he could give to somebody else in the midst of his own loss. And that he was continuing to work at this legacy for other people. Of loving when it wasn't easy. Of giving when it was hard. And of living out this new creation even at 83 years old. If he can do it, we can do it. And Paul wants us to know that it's not just for the new Christian to be excited about the new creation. It's not just for the old Christian to have proven it and be excited even more. It's for every Christian to have that right now, for you and for me, to be a new creation. And so Paul says this last thing for us. He goes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The old has gone, and the new has come. This is, this is the answer that Paul has for the new creation. Now, I like to, um, to watch just a couple of shows on TV, and one of them that I like to watch is the game show Jeopardy. Okay, And so Jeopardy um, is a show that what's so unique about it is sort of reverse. So it, it makes you think backwards and inside out. And I, I just always amazed at how quick the people can answer that. So I thought that, you know, because I know you're really bright, so I thought we would play Final Jeopardy here for just a moment. Okay, for just a moment and see if you're really listening or if you're really in tune with what you really want in life. Okay, so, so the category is a new creation. All right, so the Final Jeopardy category is a new creation. And, um, and so the answer is my identity. My identity. Okay? What's the question? So, what's the question? The question is this. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? God wants us to always be embracing our identity. He says it here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. In John chapter 14, Jesus said this, because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. As we read that, in my Father, in me, in you, we know this is not just something physical, this is far more than just something literal. This is something that is also spiritual. That Jesus is in his Father, even while he is separate being. Somehow, he is in his Father, and his Father is in him. And we are in Jesus, and Jesus is in us. And so the Christian is someone who finds their identity in Jesus. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore, if anyone, therefore now, sorry, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that if we are in Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is no judgment towards hell. There is only the reality of being loved by God. Yes, we will have to stand before God in judgment. That will be in perfect love. 
But while we live now, seeking to live out our identity, seeking to keep our priorities, seeking to build our legacy, knowing that we have our final destiny in him, we can embrace our identity. If Jesus is our identity, then we can embrace Jesus. That's how we live out our identity, by embracing Jesus and letting Jesus embrace you. There's a picture here, this final picture I, I want you to see. I don't know how clear it is. This is a picture of Jesus holding on to a little girl. And as we close in prayer, I would just like you to imagine you being that little girl. And whatever is your need, whatever is your hope, he wants to make you new and renewed through his presence in your life, holding you, loving you, guiding you, filling you, leading you, renewing you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, You've promised us this amazing new creation. Help us not to settle for anything less. Help us, Lord, to do what you gave us the Holy Spirit to do, to set our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. To live by faith and not by sight. To no longer live for ourselves, but to seek to please you because you died for us and you were raised again. To live out the reality of Christ in me so that whatever I think I am, my identity is not in what, my identity is not in where. My identity is in who. Who am I? My identity is in you, Lord. We pray that we would embrace you. We pray that we would know this free life that you give. We pray that you would do your work, that we would be your new creation. Thank you for helping us. We surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.